0: Hey, good to see you guys. Uh, Why don't you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, yes, chapter 4. Now, as we have said numerous times, James uh, has been challenging his readers to greater maturity in their lives for the Lord. That would be including all of us, of course. Now, maturity in the Christian life is uh, all about us becoming more and more godlike, which is where the word godly comes from, godlike. And that means drawing closer to the Lord every day. And as we do, of course, through the word and prayer, fellowship with the saints and so on, reading the word. uh, As we do that, we are drawing closer and closer to him. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, uh, if we do that, the Holy Spirit will begin to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. So it's all about drawing close to God. That's what James wants us to do uh, he's talking to a group of people that many of them don't seem like they were on fire maybe they were one time but it seems like he's got to kind of you know uh stoke the fires because uh it's kind of going out so he's encouraging them all throughout this epistle to kind of get going kind of get serious uh get on fire again start walking with the lord start getting close to him of course satan doesn't want that obviously he doesn't want us getting close to god he doesn't want us to become more and more godly i mean he's lost us if we're saved i'm convinced so once you're saved, you're always saved. But if he can neutralize your walk by keeping you in a carnal place or getting you back into the world where your growth in Christ stops, basically, he'll do that. And uh, that's really kind of what James, I think, is thinking of. He's, you know, he knows that drawing closer to God each day is going to make us godly, and that's going to make us mature. Uh, he knows Satan, uh, the adversary, is going to try to thwart that. He knows that sin separates us from God and keeps us from drawing close to Him. And of course, the only remedy for sin on our part, of course, is repentance. That's why last time, as we looked at uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, we talked about how that uh, James lists 10 imperatives in the Greek. An imperative is a command. 10 commands that go along with true repentance. All right, If repentance is what Uh, will draw us close if we we walked away if we've kind of gotten back into some old habits what we need to do is repent and um, God will then take us and we will begin to draw close to him again so last time we looked at uh, as James focused on repentance we looked at the 10 commands that he gives uh, that are essential for true repentance and you'll See these. you can go back and and get the CD or go online and listen to it but tonight we continue in our study as James zeroes in now on other sins of course sin will keep us from God sin will keep us stunted in our growth and so he's trying to encourage his readers toward maturity but he does it in a kind of interesting way he points out the sins along the way that will keep people from growing in the Lord and so uh, tonight he gives us uh, some others Uh, Some other sins that are practiced by Christians will not only stunt uh, our growth in Christ, but listen to me, when Christians bring these things into the body of Christ, the local church, well, it it has a devastating effect on all the saints. We don't ever sin alone. I mean, our sin always has a ripple effect, especially if we bring it into the church. It will infect other people. You know, if we're murmuring and complaining, that is a way of getting kind of passed around. And suddenly more people start murmuring and complaining. It brings carnality and discord into the entire body and keeps the whole church you know, from growing in unity and love. So in verses 11 to 12, he admonishes Christians not to speak evil or to judge one another. Verse 11, he said, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now, in verses 7 to 10, as we just said, James is dealing with believers getting right with God through repentance, which is turning around. You're going in one direction away from God. You repent, which means to turn around, start moving back toward God. So the idea is that, you know what? You are moving toward God now after you repent. The idea is you want to be obedient and so on. But James... From there seems to be saying in these next couple of verses that getting right with God will also of necessity mean you will get right with others. How? By showing love to them. It's, it's kind of like a, a some kind of a meter almost where the more we are critical of others, the more we are uh, gossiping, slandering, putting people down, uh, as I said, murmuring, complaining. It just tells us we're not close to God. The closer we move to God, those things begin to drop off and of what is replaced is the fruit of the Spirit. And, of course, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, the whole list in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, these are the qualities or the characteristics of, of Christians who are walking in the Spirit. And so James is saying, look, you know, he, he said earlier in chapter 4, where do wars come from? And Okay, I, I'm, I'm assuming he's talking about all the conflicts that were going on in the church where he's writing to. Where do these wars come from? Where, where does all this strife come from? It comes from inside your ugly heart, basically, is what he was saying. got to get your heart right. Get right with God. It can't help but affect your heart toward others. And you'll begin to see a change in the way you love them. Look at John the Apostle put it this way in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Look, if the goal of the Christian life is to become more like God and God is love, then of course the goal of the Christian life is to learn to love one another more. That is the thing. I mean, it leads the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love. It is the thing Jesus said, everyone will know you belong to me by the love you have for each other. I mean, we can't we can't underscore enough the importance of walking in that love. Of course, the only way we're going to walk in agape love, God's love, is if we're drawing close to God. Because agape love, as we have said many times, is a love that we can't manufacture. It's not inherent uh, in us. We're not born with it. We can't, you know, as we've said before, uh, fake it or make it. It's something that is of God. God doesn't just have a lot of it. He is love. And so the idea is that we need God to pour it into us. Well, it started at salvation, Romans 5, verse 5. He has poured his spirit into us when we got saved. Now, that love is there. God's love has been poured into us. Again, Romans 5, verse 5. But it doesn't mean we have to tap into it. It doesn't mean we have to draw from it. We can still be carnal. We can still be selfish. Right? It's there. Unbelievers don't have the, God's love in them, so they can't even tap into it. They have human love but not divine love, but we don't even have to tap into as children of God. It it all is a result of, look, how much do I want to walk with God and and be like God and treat others the way God would want me to treat them? Uh, That's going to determine how much of God's love is going to begin to flow through our lives onto others. So loving each other must be our goal because God is love and we want to be more like him. Of course, loving people, guys, starts with the way we talk about them, or in this case, what James says is uh, how we are not to talk about them. Hence, James' command, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Speak evil translates an ancient Greek word katalalia, or in this case, the verb form. Author and scholar William Barclay defined that Greek word this way. He said, and I quote, katalalia is the sin of those who meet in corners and gather in little groups and pass on confidential information which destroy the good name of those who are not there to defend themselves, end quote. Of course, today the word we would use is slander instead of speak evil of. In fact, I think some of your newer translations probably use the word slander, all right? But writing in the 1828 edition of his dictionary, Noah Webster declared slander as, and I quote, a false tale or report maliciously uttered and tending to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens, by exposing him to impeachment and punishment, or by impairing his means of living, end quote. All right, you get the idea. And the reason that, I want to spend just a little extra time on that, not just to say the word, don't slander, let's move on, is because it's so important that we understand what it means and how devastating it is when we practice it. Look, slander is a really cruel and hateful thing to do to another who is not there to defend themselves against our accusations. Therefore, we can portray them in the mind of another with absolute autonomy and impunity and they can't do anything about it, they can't defend themselves, they're not there, they're helpless to stop us, that's evil. That's evil. When I can take a person and I can paint in another person's mind a picture of this person that's absolutely contrary to who they really are. I can make them anything in that regard, I'm God. I'm creating in the mind of another an image of this person That might be completely false. I might think it's true, but it might be, in reality, completely false. And yet, the person can't stop me. Often they don't even know I'm doing it. I mean, tell me that's not evil. That's why James said earlier that the tongue from which slander springs is, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Of course, to be a slanderer is the exact, exact opposite of what it means to be godly or like God. In fact, guys, one of the names given to Lucifer in the Bible is devil. That comes from the Greek word diabolos, uh, and it's a word that literally means slanderer. You can always tell if a person is operating more under the influence of the devil than they are of the Holy Spirit, because what comes out of their mouth will sow discord Uh, create tension, strife, uh, will destroy characters, and so on. It says the writer of the Proverbs said in chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer, you know, somebody who's whispering gossip in people's ears or slander, separates the best of friends. Satan has come to steal, kill, destroy. He's come to divide and conquer. And when somebody is operating under the influence of the devil, well, they'll be the one who are dividing. They'll be the ones who are sowing the discord, uh, separating friends, dividing churches. We see it all the time. Our goal should be, Lord, I want to use my tongue, my mouth, to build up. I want to encourage. Uh, I want to, you know, the the Bible says, you know, uh, some use their, their tongues as swords to slice and dice and cut. Others use them to promote healing, you know. Uh, a kind word, an encouraging word, and so on. But James says again in verse 11, Do not speak evil of one or another brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother. Let me stop there. Notice how James connects slandering with judging. Why? They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. The word judge or here judges is krino in the Greek. The word krino in the Greek. And listen, it doesn't refer... To judging in the sense of an evaluation, like you would be judging an athletic competition. All right, you're a judge, uh, judging uh, you know some kind of gymnastics competition or uh, or you know uh, ice skating thing. It's not that kind of word. Okay, the word "crino" doesn't refer to evaluation, but to condemnation, judging them to hell. Now look, not literally. None of us have the authority to send anyone to hell. But the idea is pronouncing people, pronouncing a person or people defiled and irredeemable, those that were only created to fuel the fires of hell, all right? Those people that God couldn't possibly love, doesn't care about, uh, will never see heaven because they're so defiled, no hope for. You say, well, who thinks that way? The scribes and Pharisees were two groups. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that Gentiles, in particular, were only created by God to fuel the fires of hell. They were basically, well, I wouldn't say irredeemable, because there were Gentiles who did proselyte, uh, become proselytes of Judaism. They converted to Judaism. Of course, in the Jewish mind, they might have been now become covenant people of God, but they were always second-class citizens behind the Jews, because we're God's chosen people. Okay, These folks... Johnny come lately's okay we'll let him in right, they can hang out in the porch but we inhabit the house okay we're the true children of God that kind of thing uh, so all kind of almost irredeemable all right in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees but but these were the guys who in fact it, it was so bad that the only group they really thought were good were themselves and those who were the other, their buddies other scribes and pharisees the pharisees were the ones who would walk down the streets of a town with their robes pulled tight to their bodies lest the breeze take the flap of their robe and it would flap up against some uh, gentile or unbeliever and they would be defiled okay you're not going to have a real powerful ministry reaching people with that kind of an attitude all right so you know and we have modern day scribes and pharisees People that think that their particular church is the only right one in the whole world. Everybody else, you know, they're, we're the the true people of God, and so on. And so you see a lot of this in the church. Um, it's sad. It's a mark of carnality and pride. And the idea is we are not to judge people uh, in this way. We are not to basically pronounce them worthy of hell or hell-bound um and all unbelievers are hell bound we know that but nobody is beyond the grace of god we also know that as evangelicals to say well you know your group of you you guys can never get to heaven that that's the problem with a lot of churches it's only us okay now guys i want to say something here so you don't misunderstand james is not listen he is not talking about correcting or even rebuking a Christian who is living in sin or has gotten involved in sin. The Bible says we are commanded to use the Word of God to, you know, correct, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. If a person's life is not matching, a Christian now, if their life is not matching what the Bible says, if they're living in sin, we have a right to. And especially as leaders, we have a right to to challenge them, to correct them, even to rebuke them if they are unwilling to repent. So that's totally acceptable. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 talks about that. But what we're talking about or what James is referring to is sitting in the place of God and condemning a person to hell as their judge, jury, and executioner, something Jesus commanded us not to do. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2? He said, judge not, Crino, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And it seems as though Jesus has got, obviously, unbelievers in mind who religious folks, probably the scribes and Pharisees, who condemned everybody else, because they weren't measuring up to God standards like they were, not realizing that as they're condemning everybody else for falling short of keeping the law like perfectly like they did, which they didn't, they didn't realize they were, themselves were on their way to hell. And a lot of these tax collectors and harlots and, and, and all of that were coming to Jesus and getting saved, and they couldn't understand how that could be possible. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked at some of the people who made it, and some who didn't make it. But that's just the way it is, right? So Jesus says, Judge not lest that you be not judged. Well, again, James uh, 4, verse 11. He goes on, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Uh, listen to me. Remember we said slander and judgment goes hand in hand. Let me try to tell you what how I... Interpret that, okay, how I think of it. Slander is the accusation of guilt. Oh, here's what they did, you know, and sometimes it's not even true. People are passing along gossip. They they haven't really verified, right? But slander is the accusation of guilt. Judgment is the condemnation for that guilt. So it's like in a court of law. Evidence is presented. The jury gives its verdict, and then the judge, you know, gives the uh, the punishment. And and but we but we often act as judge and jury uh when we slander people. We're pronouncing them guilty of certain actions and then because of those actions we're saying that well they're going to hell that's all there is to it. You know? But James tells us guys that when we engage in slander and judging listen we are guilty of violating God's law ourselves. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, Slander is failing to love others. Slander, therefore, is a violation of the law. The law is love codified. It is the expression of how to love others, end quote. You remember what James said earlier in chapter 2, verse 8, where he said, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look, as we have said before, when we studied that passage, Uh, As Christians, we are not under the law of Moses. We are under a greater law than the law of Moses, the law of love, which James called again the royal law. The royal law was first expressed in Leviticus 19, verse 18, where God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you remember how that the Lord gave Israel 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments, Right? You had uh, 365 were negative, thou shalt not. 248 were positive, things they were commanded to do, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But together, 365, 613, I should say, commandments. And that's a lot to remember. So what the Jews started doing was, since the average Jew could never memorize all those laws, what the rabbis were doing was they were dividing the law into heavy and light heavy and light what does that mean well heavy commandments were the ones that you absolutely had to obey and the light ones well you know god you you can't do it all so you know it's like when i was a catholic uh you know you had your mortal sins don't do those then you have your like venial sins well you know god cuts you a break you know little white lies that kind of thing you know but that's how they were doing it all right So one day they came to Jesus and said, well, you know, Rabbi, what is the greatest of all the laws? Because this was a running argument, 613 laws. Uh, The rabbis, Pharisees, were always trying to argue as to, well, what is the greatest law? So they came to Jesus and said, you know, Rabbi, what is the greatest law of all? And he said in Mark 12, verse 30 and 31, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength this is the first commandment the greek is the supreme commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these so jesus took 613 laws and broke them down into just two one vertical one horizontal vertical love god with all your heart soul mind and strength horizontal Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul the apostle did basically the same thing in Romans 13. Why don't you turn there? Romans 13, starting with verse 8, where Paul said, He said, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Look, the royal law forbids me from mistreating or taking advantage of another because I am to love them as I love myself. All right and to treat them as I would want them to treat me. In fact, Jesus talked about this in a slightly different way, under a slightly different title. He, we call it the golden rule out of Matthew 7, verse 12, uh, when he said, you know, um, if you treat others the way you would have them treat you, that's all you need. That's all you need, okay? Such a simple idea, but so powerful. If we as Christians would start treating each other really the way we would want each other to treat us most of the problems in the church would evaporate overnight it would be amazing to see it but james is saying some things that seem hard at first let me see if i can't work through it with you and we'll try to clear up any confusion but again verse 11 he says don't don't speak evil of one another brethren he who speaks evil of her brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law but if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law But a judge. Now listen, this is important, okay? James is saying that when we condemn another with our words, we have taken the place of God as judge over their life. When we condemn others with our words, we are basically have taken the place of God as judge over their life. No longer now are we on the same level as them, subject to the same laws of God as they are. Instead, we have elevated ourselves to a level of God who alone, listen, is perfect, and therefore the only one who has the moral authority to judge sinners who violate his laws. In fact, we actually elevate ourselves above God in the sense that if we judge his laws as invalid or being, you know, unworthy of our respect or obedience, we make ourselves superior to God, which is, listen, the ultimate blasphemy against him. We don't think of it this way, but as we read the word of God and God commands us to do something, and we read that and go, well, I just don't feel it's wrong for me to do what God condemns. So what am I doing? I'm saying basically that I'm more righteous than God. My standards are even higher than his. I mean, think about the implications there. In fact, one author put it this way. He said, and I quote, since slander is a violation of the law of love, a slanderer speaks against the law and condemns the law, thus showing utter disregard for the divine standard. And if you place yourself above God's laws, uh, God's law, warns James, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. The unimaginable implication is that uh, the one who disregards God's law in effect claims to be superior to the law of God not to be bound by it or to be subject to its authority. By such fearful disrespect, the sinner judges the law as unworthy of his attention, affection, obedience, submission, all of which is blasphemy against God. End quote. James said in verse 12, look, there's only one law given. We don't get to make the laws. You know, it's, some people, you know, some people um, think that they should have the right to decide what's right and wrong. Uh, God never gave us the ten suggestions, did he? He gave us the ten commandments. There is an absolute standard of right and wrong. God is the one who created it. He's God. He's got the moral authority to tell us what is right, what is wrong, what we can do, what we are not to do. But man doesn't like that. So man comes along and says, well, I know what you Christians believe. I know what the Bible says. I don't really care. I don't care if God says I can't uh, sleep around I feel it's a, I like to live that way. Or I I don't care if God says homosexuality uh, is a sin. That's who I am. And I'm just going to go ahead and be who I am. When people decide to make the rules, what they're saying to God is, I'm God and I'm going to be subject to my own laws, not yours. But James says there's only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Look, a lot of people are living lives that in their mind are completely right on righteous and because they feel that because they think the way they're living is okay well there's going to be no there's going to be no day of reckoning coming they don't realize when they stand before the god of the universe he's not going to share their feeling for how they were living they think because they feel it's okay god must feel it's okay they're going in for a, a, a horrible surprise on the Day of Judgment when they realize, you know, it's like, it's like uh, the laws of our land, okay? We have, uh, we have uh, a highway or, or uh, laws for the road, right? And, you know, you see a sign that says 25 miles an hour, and you say, well, I don't like that law. I'm going to go 50. <laughs> and you go 50, and a cop pulls you over, gives you a ticket, you go into court. And the judge says, you're going 15 out of 25. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, I didn't like that law, Your Honor. I didn't think it was fair. I got a really hot car, and that car is able to really go. Why should I be limited to 25 miles an hour? You think the judge is going to go, oh, okay, I guess, all right, fine. He said, look, you don't get to make the laws. You don't get to make the rules. And either you're going to abide by the laws of the land, or you're going to have to pay the penalty. So a lot of people who are not abiding by God's laws but are creating their own laws and they have, they're completely clueless to the fact that they're going to stand before the moral lawgiver someday and they're going to give an account. He's, going to bring, he's got everything written down. His ledger is very complete. He will open it up, Revelation 20, the books are opened and they will be judged according to the things written in the books. One book is the law of God, the word of God. The other book is the ledger that contained everything they ever did to violate the law of God. And they're going to have to be held accountable. Now, if you're a Christian, when God opens our ledger, what does it say on the bottom there? Paid in full to tell us that. Written in the blood of Christ, right? So that's awesome. But again, verse 12 there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? One pastor I know had this to say in a commentary he wrote. He said, One of the greatest days in my own Christian walk was the day the Lord whispered a very simple truth into my heart that changed my entire approach to ministry and to life. He said, John, you love him and I'll judge him. You see, before that, I had it the other way around. I thought it was the Lord's job to love people and my job to judge them. I can't tell you how freeing it was to discover that I had it backwards, end quote. Remember what Paul said in Romans 14, verse 4. He said, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make his servants stand. Now, I can run over and I can help a brother or sister to stand, but if I stand over them when they have fallen and condemn them, God says, you are not allowed to do that. Read Galatians 6, first couple of verses. A truly spiritual person stoops down and helps to pick up a fallen saint. Never condemning, but reaching down. Say, look, I was where you are. I, I, I wrestled with that same sin. God gave me victory. He's going to give you victory. But let me help you up. Let's start praying together. God is going to give you grace to overcome this. But we, inc- we pick each other up, not kick each other when we're down." But listen, once a person begins to take the place of God as judge and jury over people's lives, this mindset begins to subtly bleed into other areas of their life, starting with an independent attitude, okay? Verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little uh, time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, in saying this, uh, I really think James has in mind primarily businessmen uh, in particular. Uh, those who were, in his day, successful uh, and wealthy, could be talking about business people in our day as well. Of course, uh, you have to understand something. Okay, now he's talking primarily to Jews, but his his comments, of course, transcend uh, Jewish culture and apply to all of us. Okay, so the epistle of James applies to all believers, challenging us to a deeper walk and so on and so forth. But when he starts getting down on the wealthy here, okay, you have to understand understand something. The Jewish mindset the Jews looked at wealth as a blessing from God upon a righteous life and conversely they looked at poverty as a judgment from God upon an unrighteous life this mentality guys led to a lot of pride in the part of the rich and caused them to look down on the poor and to feel very justified in doing so because they were they were being judged for being sinners i'm wealthy I mean, that, that's God's stamp of approval on my life. I must be a pretty good person, because look it. God only blesses with money the righteous. Look at how much money I have. Okay, I must be a really righteous guy. Whereas this guy, begging for his food for today, obviously, God has got his hand of judgment upon that person's life. And so that was the mentality. And I think James has really got that in mind, because in verses, verse 13 of chapter 4, running through verse 6 of chapter 5, he has some pretty harsh words for the rich because their thinking was wrong. Their reasoning was faulty. He labels them as proud, arrogant, judgmental people who believe their wealth, again, God's approval, gave them the right to judge and oppress the poor, again, those that God had judged with poverty. But not only that, guys, not only that, it produced a lot of pride in them, which is what we said. And that pride bred an independent, self-reliant attitude in the way they were living their lives. Apparently, they felt they didn't have to ask God. Again, the one who was in charge of their life. I'm assuming these were Christians. Apparently, they felt they didn't have to ask God where he wanted them to go and what he wanted them to do each day. Even though Jesus himself never planned his day without first consulting his heavenly Father, Mark 1 verse 35. It was his habit every morning to get up before the sun rose to spend time in his father's presence. If you study that passage in Mark's Gospel chapter one, after he did that, and his disciples at one point got up and started looking for him, and uh, you know, Lord, you know, we were looking for you. He says, I know. Come on, we have to we have to leave this town where revival was happening or God was moving and it was like more of a big like a big city town and we have to go down the road to the smaller rural communities well you know you, you think today you want to stay in the population centers that would be logical but when we seek god for his will for our day for our life he will often lead us in paths that don't seem logical but he knows what he's doing he knows where he's leading And he knows the people that are there that he wants us to touch and witness to. Jesus, you know, going up to Samaria, sitting down by a well at noon, waiting for a certain woman to come, an outcast, who he knew from the foundation of the world, God had penciled it into his docket for that day. How did he know that? He spent time with his father. His father revealed to him today, I want you to go up to Samaria. I want you to wait there by the well of Sychar because there's a woman. She's an outcast. Because women didn't draw water at noon. It was the hottest part of the day. They came early in the morning or later uh, later in the evening when the sun was you know, not as hot. She was an outcast. We, you remember the story. But Jesus knew where to go because the Father directed him. When you're proud, you don't think you need anyone to tell you what to do. You're going to do what you think is right. And that's a problem. So James calls them on it, these folks. He calls them out. Is basically asking them, you know, who do you think you are, God? Who do you think you are, God? That you think you can plan where you go and do what you want without consulting God and then, you know, boast about all your plans as if you're in charge? I'm just going to read these to you. You can write down the, uh, the addresses if you want. If we seek God to lead our lives, and folks, there are those who believe that God does not lead our lives in everyday things. He does not have a personal will for your life. As long as you just keep the Ten Commandments, you can basically go where you want, do what you want. Of course, it's not sinful. Marry who you want. Take whatever job you want. Get involved in whatever ministry you want. Because God is not involved in our lives at that level. Well, look, if every hair on our head is numbered and there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground but what our Father doesn't know about it, I would think he'd be interested in who I married, what ministry I got involved in, and so on. I'll give you these that, to me, make it clear. Again, one of my favorite scriptures, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths, implying there is a right path to walk, and there is a wrong path to walk. And I want him to direct me in the right paths for my life. Jeremiah 10.23 O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Psalm 143, verse 8. The psalmist said, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. That's the time I want to get up and seek you, Lord, for my day. For in you I do trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. Now I'll give you one more. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already prepared uh, the steps of my life. He's already prepared the works he wants me to do for his name. I need to seek him. I need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. If I'm going to be directed in the right work, the right path, and so on. This idea that I can just wing it, you know, to me is ridiculous. Now look, verse 14 is really important, guys, for all people, but especially for those who are busy laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, you know, and planning for their financial future, maybe their retirement, but uh, who have laid nothing up in heaven for eternity. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning on Luke 12 where Jesus gave that parable of the, rich, of the man whose field, he had a bumper crop. It was a good harvest. And he said to himself, so what am I going to do? My barns aren't big enough to hold everything, all my crops. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones. And I'll put all my stuff in there, and I'll have many goods laid up for many years. And then I can kick back, eat, drink, be merry. I'll, I'll, just, I'll retire. And God said to this man, you fool. For tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. Tonight, your life on earth is done. And then, who is going to benefit from all the things you work so hard on this earth to acquire? And Jesus says, so it is with every man or woman that lays up for themselves treasures on earth but is not rich toward God. What are they? A fool. A fool. There is a parable that Jesus gave in Luke 16 that has given some Christians fits in trying to understand just what the Lord is teaching through it, Uh, since it dovetails with the subject we're talking about, let's look at it. I won't actually read uh, all of it, Luke 16, we'll just look at the first nine verses, you can read the rest of it on your own, but the first nine verses are really what what is the confusing part for a lot of people. I have to tell you, when I first read this, when I was a new Christian, I'm like, oh my good, I have no idea what the Lord's talking about. I can't figure this, this parable out. Let's look at it. Where Jesus said to his disciples, "There was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now, a steward was a manager, a household man. Rich people had managers that would manage their estates, their affairs. They would take care of uh, seeing that the uh, the slaves had uh, food and 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 whatever they needed. They would make sure supplies were purchased uh, for the running of the of the household. These are wealthy people. They had a lot of servants." And, uh, you know, good-sized uh, landholding and so on, all right? So it was very common for them to have these stewards or these uh, household managers. Well, here was a guy who worked for a rich guy, and an accusation was brought to his boss about this steward that he, this man was wasting his master's goods. He was sloughing off. He was, uh, you know, not being prudent, not being wise in how he was spending the master's money and purchasing supplies and things. So he, the master, called him in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account uh, of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. So bring the books up to date. You're, you're out. Okay. Verse 3, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I can't dig ditches. I'm not strong enough for that. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. And said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. This is the part that threw me right out the window. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. And I'm thinking, as a young, brand new Christian, what? The guy's basically ripping the boss off? And he commends him for that? No, no, no. He didn't commend him for his dishonesty. He commended him for his shrewdness. He said, verse 8, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into, into an everlasting home. Now, I'll let you read the rest of that. But I, I don't know about you the first time you read that, but to me, I'm thinking, I have no idea what the Lord's talking about. I, I have no idea what the Lord... Look, let me tell you what, I've since I've studied the passage more, look, here's what he's saying. The unjust steward wasn't such a hot worker, but he was smart enough to use his present circumstance to set himself up for the uncertainty of the future. He knew his job was coming to an end. What's he going to do? I can't dig. Uh, I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? Well, I will I will call my master's creditors in, or debtors in, I should say, and uh, reduce their bills so that when my master kicks me out. Maybe one of them will show me kindness because I gave him a break, right? Uh, you know, instead of owing my master uh, 100 measures of oil, it's now 50 or whatever it was. You know, he reduced it. The masters didn't commend him for what he did. He commended him for his shrewdness. You know, he said, you know, that's, that was pretty sharp, pretty, pretty shrewd. You used whatever time you had left as my steward to ingratiate yourself with my debtors, so that when your job here was finished, maybe one of them would take you into their house and give you a job. I don't know who would do that. You just cheated the last guy. Why, why would a person do that? I don't know. But this is the way the guy's thinking. And then Jesus said, this was the application. He says, look, the sons of this world are more shrewd than the children of God in this regard. How? They will use their time on earth. They gather for themselves wealth for their retirement. But we as the people of God won't use the little time we have in this earth and money, mammon. We don't use it to build a kingdom, oftentimes. We have laid nothing up in heaven because we only get a little time on this earth. How, How foolish is it not to use unrighteous mammon, not to take something you can't hold on to and use it right now for something you can never lose, rewards in heaven. That's smart, right? That's shrewd. But we don't often act that way, you know? And that's why Jesus said, you know, basically, he, was, he said, use your money now, which he called unrighteous mammon. You know, money is neutral, really. But so often it's looked upon as something dirty. A lot of people, you know, it's not really the, the money that's the root of all evil. It's what? The love of money, okay? Money can be used for great good, for the kingdom of God, but for too many people, it just destroys them with greed and so on. But Jesus is encouraging us to use our money right now for eternal purposes, the saving of souls, the saving of souls. He says, make I'll paraphrase, make friends, converts, for yourself with your money, so that when you die, <laughs> they will be waiting to greet you and rejoice with you in heaven. My pastor years ago in um, teaching this passage, he said, can you imagine the day that you die and you go up to heaven? And somebody says, are you so-and-so? Well, yeah, on the earth, that was my name. Well, you know, when I got up here, I checked the board, and I found out it was your gift to that missionary that allowed him to come to my village and preach the gospel. I got saved because of you. And I just want to thank you. I mean, we can't, we're not going to live forever in this earth, but we can send all of our churches on up ahead, and, most, and the idea is, using our money to save souls, that when we we die, they will receive you into everlasting habitations together. Who? All the people that benefited, all the converts that were won, when we took our money on this earth and gave it to missions or to our church to see people saved. The gospel spread. That is wise. What did God say to the prophet Daniel? He who wins souls is what? Wise. And will shine like the stars of heaven forever. That's wise. Of course, none of this is going to become a reality in a Christian's life as long as they live their life as if they are in control of their time on the earth. As James admonishes, again, he admonishes these folks. In verse 14, I'll read it to you the Amplified Bible. It says, Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen tomorrow. What is, what is the nature of your life? Uh, You are really but a wisp of vapor, a puff of smoke, a mist, that is visible for a little while and then disappears into thin air. Guys, it is the height of arrogance for a person to act like God where they live as if they have control over their life and especially over when their life will end. In this regard, Satan has deceived them. And it's kept them harboring under the mistaken, and listen, dangerous notion that they have time, that they have time, time to receive Jesus and or time to start living for him before they die. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, starting with verse 45, Jesus said, who then is a faithful and wise servant? Whom his master made ruler over his household, Ganus steward, to give them food in due season. Blessed is that, is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing, being faithful. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, I've got time, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay relates the following story to illustrate the danger of spiritual procrastination. He said, and I quote, there is a fable which tells of three apprentice demons who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the demons, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them there is no God. Satan said, eh, that, will that will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second said, I will tell men that there is no hell. Satan answered, You will deceive no one that way. Men know, even now, that there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, you will ruin men by the thousands. Guys, the most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time to get serious about God, and so there's no need to hurry. Of course, the Bible (laughs) sees it differently. Remember what God's word says in so many places. I'll just give you a couple. Admonishing unbelievers not to put off receiving Jesus when the gospel is presented to them. Remember what the Bible says today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart because today is the day of salvation. All right, Don't harden your heart. You you don't know if you're going to get another chance. If you hear his voice today tugging at your heart to receive Christ, don't put that off. And to believers, he said in Romans 13 verse 11, and do this, knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Implying that some Christians can fall asleep and have fallen asleep in the light. They're not watching any longer. We are commanded to be vigilant, to be watchful. Watching for what? Our Lord's return. Well, how do we know when He's coming? because he's given us prophecy after prophecy to tell us what will be going on just before he comes. But a lot of churches aren't teaching prophecy. A lot of churches feel it makes people uncomfortable. The young generation, they don't want to hear prophecy. We've got Calvary pastors who are no longer teaching prophecy because they want to draw the young people in And they believe that young people don't want to hear about that kind of stuff. It's doom and gloom. Therefore, they want to just keep it positive and relevant. And so they're sleeping in the light. And yet James is indicting the Christians he is writing or was writing to for boasting about their making plans for the future, getting back to our text. But, you know, James is basically indicting um, the Christians he was writing to for boasting about their plans for the future. He said in verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Why? Because it leaves God out of our plans. Well, We were bought with a price, the Bible says. We are no longer our own. We belong to God. Who are we to start planning anything without God directing us? We belong to Him. And James says, how arrogant is it, especially for you rich folks, who think that because you have money, that somehow you're above uh, seeking God for His will for your life, that you can do whatever you want right he said then you go around boasting in your future plans it's evil remember what the writer of the Proverbs said in Proverbs 27 verse 1 he says do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth I think it's fine to make plans for the future as long as you make sure every day you're ready to meet your God every day last Thursday in Arlington Heights There was a horrific accident. I saw the report. One of the officers on the scene said, I've been doing this for 40 years. I have never seen an accident that bad. A father, mother, and their 20-year-old daughter were on their way to a soccer game when suddenly a young guy going 100 miles an hour T-boned them. All four of them were killed instantly. Now, he knew he was going 100 miles an hour. But I'm convinced his family never saw this guy coming. What would it be like to be one minute driving to a soccer game, the next minute you open your eyes, you're in eternity? Now, if you're a Christian, that won't be bad. But I'm thinking about what if you're not a Christian? You know, I'm a firm believer that we are to plan. Paul the Apostle planned. He said, look, if I get some time, I want to come to see you folks in Spain, and then I want to go over here, if God wills. If God wills, we belong to him. I can't just make plans and say, well, I'm going to do this and that. If God allows me to, or if he wills, I do it, I will. But we don't know when our life on earth will be over. Therefore, live every day as if this could be your last day by making sure you're right with the people you love and especially that you're right with God. We'll end with verse 17. James says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James finishes the chapter by telling his readers that, look, it's one thing to make plans in life not knowing what the will of God is. It's another thing altogether, to know God's will and to purposely disobey His will by your plans. One pastor gave some clarity on this verse. He said, and I quote, there are those who say, I'm going to do this or I'm going to retire there. I've got my future all worked out. But when asked if they're going to church on Sunday or if they'll have devotions tomorrow, they say, well, if the Lord wills. Do you see the irony? I'm going skiing next week. or on vacation in July, we say. But regarding church tomorrow night, we say, well, we'll see what God has in store. We have it backward. We should be saying, I may go skiing next week if God wills, or I may take a vacation in July if that's what the Lord has for me. But as for going to church on Sunday, I'll be there absolutely. That's why James says, if you know what's right, but hide behind the excuse of waiting for God's leading before doing it, it is a sin, end quote. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, these people know the will of God, but choose to disobey it. This attitude expresses even more pride than does the first for the person who says to God, I know what you want me to do, but I prefer not to do it. I really know more about this than you do, Lord. (laughs) Peter said, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Look, guys, and we're done. James is telling us in this last verse, or at least he's implying something, that those who know the will of God and don't do it are going to be punished more severely than those who didn't know God's will and didn't do it. And I'll give you one last scripture, Luke 12. You can turn there, Luke 12. You know, James basically earlier said, look, you're making all these plans, but you have never asked God. You you don't know what God's will is. That's bad. It's even worse, though, to know God's will and not do it by making other plans. That's even worse. Luke 12, starting with verse 47. Jesus said, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. In other words, with knowledge comes responsibility. There are people who have lived all their life in church. They have heard the Bible taught every week. And probably read the Bible themselves often. Yet they have never given their heart to Christ. They have never been born again. They have religion. They don't have a relationship. You say, how is that possible? Believe me, it's more possible than you ever realize. There are so many religious people who love God their in their own way and who go to church and maybe light the candles, pray the rosary, you know, keep the holy days and they're not just Roman Catholics, okay? There are a lot of people who grew up in Protestant churches that have been marinated in doctrine, creeds, and so on. But in their mind, because they have grown up in church and they were water baptized and they have memorized a few creeds, it's all they need. And when they read the Bible and God says, don't cheat your neighbor, don't, you know, take people to court for any old reason yet they do that and they they sue everybody in town and they make a lot of money and so on it just says to me they don't really know the lord but when they stand before him they're going to be punished more severely in hell than the person who didn't really know all that god had said no doubt god gave them an opportunity they heard the gospel but if they hear the gospel and reject it and go on living the way they were living Well, they didn't know everything God had said. They knew how to get saved. They rejected Christ. But their punishment in hell is going to be a lot less severe than the person who came to church every week, read the Bible, knew what God had said, but disobeyed it. With knowledge comes responsibility is the idea. And that's kind of what James is saying. Look, if you want to be godly, you want to be mature, okay, then don't pick and choose what you're going to do from God's word. Uh, seek to obey every word that proceeds from the mouth of god this is how we grow this is how we become more and more like christ more godly more mature you can always tell a christian who is a hearer of the word but not a doer they're never going to grow strong in christ i'm not saying they're not saved if they're really a christian but they'll never grow into maturity they're going to live in the spiritual wilderness. They're going to die in the spiritual wilderness. to never come into the promised land, the life of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, that's what I want for my life. I don't want to miss out on anything God wants to give or do in my life. And James is just basically challenging us with that idea, okay? Uh, God willing, God willing, <laughs> we will continue next week and um, probably finish, although I cannot guarantee that. We'll see. There are a few things that we need to talk about in chapter 5 that are kind of controversial. So we'll look at that probably next time. Okay, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we seek, Lord, by your spirit to understand everything you have said and by your grace and strength to apply it into our lives and do everything you have said. And, Lord, we just thank you. Give us grace, Lord, because we're all guilty at times of picking and choosing from your word the things we're going to do and things that we don't want to do. Lord, please work in us that we want to do everything you've said, that we might draw close to you in every area, and so on. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.